First of all, it's uh, good to have Walt back, isn't it? Um, this is, uh, how many weeks were you gone? Three? Yeah. A month? Yeah. It's probably seemed longer to you than it did to us. Come to think of it, on your chairs there is a. Uh, I meant I forgot to mention this during the announcements. There's a booklet looks like this. It's a um, booklet that I got from the Vineyard Church USA, and it deals with Advent. Um, if you've been around churches for a long time, you've heard of Advent. If you are not, uh, um, you know, kind of regular at the Christmas season at church, then Advent may be something that's new to you. Advent simply means coming, and it's used to uh, uh, talk about the first coming of Jesus, the Christmas time, you know, the Christmas story. But what we talk about when we talk about Advent is the second coming of Jesus because we know that He's coming back again. So we're looking for His return, just as many of these songs we sang tonight mentioned. Uh, this is for you. It's an easy devotional. I was looking for something that wouldn't be too taxing for us during the Christmas season. There are only four devotions in here, one for each Sunday during Advent. So it would start next Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, you, uh, people you um, live with, work with, um, uh, neighbors, friends, relatives, can, can share this you know, on that uh, Sunday. It's a very short devotion. The scriptures are in there for you to read. It's a, none of the passages are very long. There's a theme for each one of the, the weeks. There's a short uh, commentary about that theme, and they also have a Christmas carol. If you would like to sing the Christmas carol to yourself or sing it as a family, the idea is that the family would do this together and you could sing the Christmas carols together. So nothing's left to chance. It's all right here. Please feel free to take this if you, uh, if you uh, would like to. We're going to have them out next week as well to give to uh, first-time guests that are here. We are finishing up um, this week the series that we call a, a Party, a Picnic, and a Perambulation on the Lake. It's uh, Matthew chapter 14. Um, Next week, next Monday night, gosh, that's hard, that's hard to think about, but next Monday night, we start our play, our Christmas play, and it will be for three Monday nights running. Uh, there will be a short, you know, like a, a, an act of the play, but each act is only like 10, 12 minutes, and then a message that kind of expounds on the theme for that night's play. They all go together. It's all one big story, but... Um, uh, kind of progressive over the three weeks that we're going to be doing it. This platform up here, is, I think, as I told you last week, will be transformed into a beauty parlor setting. And I actually saw on site uh, some beauty parlor equipment, uh, chairs that ladies would sit in, and that, that thing that you you know put down over your head that I don't know what happened to hair dryers like this, but. It's the halo thing that comes down here like you're going to have brain surgery or something. And uh, those are, that's here. So it'll be in, an, in the space right here. I don't know what they're going to do with it, but it's always good. So we're looking forward to the next three Monday nights with you, and I hope you can make all three of those as we uh, begin the Christmas season. Again, our passage tonight is from Matthew chapter 14. 
beginning at verse 22. I'm going to read 22 through 33, and then we'll finish up the, the uh, section of Scripture here in a little bit. Uh, I want to save that last part for a little bit later. Uh, in this church, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God, the only rule for faith and life. Please listen as we read God's Word. Matthew 14, 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of Him to the other side while He dismissed the crowd. After He had dismissed them, He went up on a mountainside by Himself to pray. When evening came, He was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the, on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat and the wind died down, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This particular account, this account of Peter walking on the water is unique to the book of Matthew. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. I've, I've told you that many times these stories, these accounts, will appear in several of the Gospels, maybe not all four. The, the passage we looked at last week about the feeding of the 5,000 is the only one that appears in, only one of the miracles that appears in all four of the Gospels. But Mark and John have this account of Jesus walking on the water without Peter walking on the water. It's kind of interesting. <clears throat> and this account doesn't begin, it's, the focus of it is not Jesus' walking on the water. It begins with Jesus dismissing the crowds and going up onto a mountaintop by himself to pray. If you look at all the Gospels together, which again I encourage you to do uh, almost every time together, I think you'll see that there's three reasons that he went... Um, that he dismissed them, and he stayed behind them by himself. The first reason would be this. He wanted to be alone to pray. Jesus wanted to be alone to pray. Verse 23 says, After he had dismissed them, he went up on that mountainside by himself to pray. He, remember in the, in the first week that we looked at uh, chapter 14, John the Baptist was murdered. His, he was beheaded. That's Jesus' cousin. He was beheaded, and Jesus wanted to take some time to go be by himself, to pray, to grieve, to mourn, to just think. So he went then to a, to a solitary place, it said in the Scriptures, but he had hardly got there before crowds started coming to him, wanting to be healed, wanting to hear him, wanting him to teach. So he had no time to himself. Because, as we talked about last week, to him it was more important to take care of the people for whom he had compassion than it was to have his own private time. 
The second reason I think he stayed behind was this. He wanted to escape the crowds and get some rest. Ministry is a taxing and tiring thing. He had been on the go constantly. As you read through the Gospels, Jesus is either going someplace, coming from someplace, or doing something all the time. There's hardly any time that that we would call downtime or rest time. And I'm sure he, being... 100% human and 100% God, the human side of him was feeling very fatigued by this time. If you look back at uh, maybe maybe three chapters back and start reading up to where we are now, all of that happens within a short period of time. And I think you'll see with all those events taking place how draining it most probably was. The third reason he stayed behind was this. He wanted to defuse the popular movement that would have him become a king by force. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but in John's gospel, John chapter 6 verse 15 says this, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He sent the disciples away first, I think, because the disciples were at a stage in their development where they were pretty impressionable. They didn't really understand. John the Baptist didn't understand who he was, what he was there for. John, John sort of knew that he was Messiah, but he expected something different from Messiah, as did all the Jewish people. The Jewish people expected Messiah to be a king who would come physically sit on the throne with the scepter, throw out all the, the uh, Roman uh, army and rulers that were in the country, and take back Israel for the Jewish people by force if necessary. And Jesus wasn't doing any, any of those things. That's why John sent his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the Messiah? Remember that in the scriptures that we read? Are you the Messiah? So that was the movement that was out there to to make him king by force. Jesus sent his disciples away and dismissed the crowds before it got dark. Last week again, when we were looking at the feeding of the 5,000, one of the reasons that that, um, um, Jesus gave for feeding them right then, the disciples had come to him and said, it's getting late and these people are hungry and they don't have anything to eat. Uh, We need to send them to the villages to get some food. Well, it's not any earlier now. This is taking place later, so it's a little bit later in the day. We would assume that it's probably 7 or 8 o'clock. That, at that time in Israel, it would have gotten dark um, about 9 o'clock, 8.30, 9 o'clock. So if it's before dark, it would have been 7 or 8 o'clock. And Jesus had left to go um, on, on that mountainside, at that hour, I'd say between uh, 7 and 8. And his disciples had left in the boat before that. Well, he, he prayed until the time that he went to them walking on the water. Well, how long was that? It says in the Scripture, um, verse 25, that it was the fourth watch of the night. So that gives us a clue to how long it was, if you know about the watches of the night. In the Old Testament, the Jews had three watches of the night. Some of the, some of the prophets, minor prophets, will talk about the, the three watches of the night. But when the Romans took control over Israel, they had four 
watches of the night. I mean, you know, it had a whole new calendar and everything. Every, every time uh, configuration was changed by the Romans. So the Jews had adopted the four watches of the night that the Romans used. And they went kind of like this. The first watch was from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., and it was called eventide, when evening started. The second watch was from 9 till midnight, and it was called midnight. That's pretty easy. The third watch was from midnight till 3 o'clock in the morning, and that was called cock crowing. Remember, the cock crowed three times, and Peter, I mean, Peter denied Christ three times before the cock crowed? Well, that would have been sometime during that period of time. The, those of you that are, have been around a farm or the country at all know that uh, the, the roosters don't start crowing at sunrise. They start long before sunrise. Uh, if you're planning on getting some rest, you're not going to get rest if there's roosters around. And then the fourth watch of the night came from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So Jesus had been praying from 7 or 8 until sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. when he went to meet the disciples out there. So that would be 7 or 8 hours, I guess, maybe, that he had been praying. And the whole time he was praying, the disciples were rowing the boat. Now what makes that interesting is that the trip that they were taking, it's not a long distance. The whole Sea of Galilee is... 15 miles long, and at the widest point, 7 miles wide. This part of the lake is only about 3 miles wide. At most, it would have taken them 3 hours to row across that area. But evidently, they had been rowing for a long time, the whole time that he was praying, because a bad storm had come up suddenly. Ah, that was the key. And they were being buffeted by the wind and the waves. Jesus on that mountainside could have seen them because you can, you can essentially see the whole Sea of Galilee from up on the, the, mountain, the mountainside at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. He could have seen them. And he knew what was happening. He knew the troubles that they were encountering. And the disciples were absolutely terrified when they saw him walking out on the water. They thought it was a ghost, remember? They thought it was some sort of ghost. They weren't afraid of him. Uh, they weren't afraid of this ghost because of the same reasons that we would be frightened if we thought there was a ghost in the house or, you know, what, whatever. They were afraid because they took it as an apparition that this was an omen telling them that they were going to drown in this, in this rough sea that they were encountering. When Jesus came walking on the water, He was filling a role that had been prophesied in the Old Testament a role that was reserved strictly for God, for no one else. It says in Job chapter 9, verse 8, talking about God, it says, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. God alone would walk on the water. The disciples were, were fearful. They cried out. And in verse 27, it says this, Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, when Jesus spoke those words that calmed the disciples' fears, the words that it says he used in the NIV was, or are, it is I. It is I. 
But what he actually said in the Greek was a little different. In the Greek, it was ego a me. Ego a me. First person, singular, present tense of the verb to be. Ego a me means I am. So what he said was not it is I. What he said was I am. That may ring a bell with some of you. You think back to Exodus chapter uh, 3, verses 13 through 15. This is Moses having an encounter at the burning bush with God where he met God. And God's telling him, I've got something for you to do. I want you to go down to Egypt, and I want you to talk to the Pharaoh, and I want you to have him release the Israelites, free them, and bring them back to my land. And immediately Moses started coming up with excuses why he couldn't. Oh, I don't talk well. I, I, I stutter and I stammer and, 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 and a staff? What, kind of, what, what, what am I going to do with that staff? That staff won't help me. Uh, it's a long way down there. They will kill me if I go back because I murdered one of the Egyptians. I mean, he, t- he had excuse after excuse after excuse. And in verse 13, Moses said to God, this is chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 13. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. What was that name? That name was I Am. Not only had Jesus walked on the water as God did, as the role that was reserved for God in the Old Testament, But he also said, don't be afraid, I am. They knew exactly what that meant. And there's so many other times in the the Gospels that Jesus says, I am. A few of them might be, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Every one of those times he said that. He was indicating that he was God and he was going to fulfill that particular name of God from the Old Testament. So what he actually utters is the personal name of God, I am. And remember that Matthew's building this case all the the way through that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the king of the kingdom of God that we keep talking about. He's building that case. So this was just another one of those uh, um, proofs that he was. Jesus was demonstrating his deity by by both walking on the water and by using that term, I am. As soon as the disciples understood that the figure that they saw walking out across the water wasn't a ghost, but it was Jesus, Peter asks him, can I come to you on the water? I don't know how much you know about Peter. 
by this time, I see some people laughing. You know Peter pretty well. Peter's a lot like us, really. Uh, when, when we read through Scripture and we hear these dumb things that Peter does or says, we can think about how we would be acting in, in that particular uh, instance. Um, he says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, the disciples were in that boat, scared to death, but I, I'm sure they were elbowing each other, saying, listen to what he said. You hear what he said? The crazy man, he always says something. What's he going to say next? Why in the world did Peter ask to go to Jesus walking on the water or perambulating on the water? He was the most socially inappropriate human being that was alive at that time, I think. Time and time and time again. I mean, if you can think of that person that you know that shows up for places, you know, that, that you go and you're supposed to act a particular way and they act totally different, and you're so... <laughs> is that you, Don? Uh, and, and you're so uh, embarrassed by what they do or what they say or, you know, you're at a dinner and they don't use the right uh, silverware and they, you know, the napkin goes over the, you know, down in here or something instead of on their laps... That's Peter. But the irony in this is that Peter's name originally had been Simon, and Jesus changed his name to Peter. Peter. Petrus, which means rock. He was a rock. Now think about a rock and water. What's going to happen to a rock around water? It's certainly not going to float on top. It's going to go to the... And that's just an irony in this whole thing. Why would Peter be the one that asked to go to Jesus. But just, just like Peter, we ask to do what we are not called to do, and we often flounder in our attempts. Ministries that way. We ask God to let us do something. God, let me work with the kids in, in the kids' ministry. I hate kids. I don't have kids. I, you know, I, I, I don't like to be around kids, but let me work with the kids. Somebody got up in front of the church today and said, we need kids in children's ministry. Let me do that. I want to serve. And you go back there and you start serving and you absolutely despise it. But the kids despise you too because they know that you despise them. You both have a horrible time. Because that's not your calling. He's got people sitting in chairs out here that are called to that specific thing. They have a passion. for. They love kids. They love being around kids. They love teaching kids. They love playing with kids. But you've asked to do something that you were not called to do. How often do we do that? I remember when uh, I was getting ready to start this church, I called a a pastor friend of mine that I'd known from uh, 20, 25 years ago and told him what I was planning on doing. And he said, George, if you can do anything else in the world, don't do it. Don't be a pastor. And I didn't really understand what he meant. But I think it's the same with us in any job that we're looking at. It doesn't have to be a ministry job. If you're not called to that, if you're not passionate about that, then don't do it. 
Don't do it. Let somebody else do it. Because you won't survive. You'll be absolutely miserable, and the people around you will be more miserable. I believe that this Scripture passage that we look at tonight teaches us about the true, uh, uh, the nature of true faith. And Matthew uses the next couple of chapters that we'll probably look at after Christmas, I guess, to um, show us the first feeble attempts of the disciples to trust and to understand Jesus, who He is and what He does. So we might ask ourselves tonight, what is faith? What is faith? What is faith? Faith's not merely knowing that Jesus is the Son of God and believing that He can save us. James 2.19 says the demons know that. They believe that, but they don't have faith. They don't trust in Jesus. Faith is actually committing ourselves to Jesus. Actually committing ourselves. You know, not sitting on the fence, but jumping with both feet into His court. And Peter had true faith. I'm convinced Peter had true faith. He believed that the figure on the water was Jesus and that Jesus had the power to call him, had the power to hold him up, even when he walked out across the water. But Peter also had what we see here, an example of faltering faith. When Peter looked around him, he became aware of the winds, just how fierce they really were. And he saw those rolling waves breaking over the top of the boat. And he became afraid, and when he became afraid, he started to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. His faith was faltering at that point. Now, knowing Peter again, as he climbs down out of that boat, and these weren't small boats, they're, they're good-sized boats, you'd have to climb out of it. Uh, as he climbed down out of that boat and started walking across the water, as he got a few steps out, now Peter would be the guy that would look back over his shoulder at the disciples behind him and say, look at me, look what I'm doing. He took his eye off of Jesus and started worrying about the world around him. I think it's important to recognize here that, that Peter didn't lose his faith entirely. His faith didn't fail. It just faltered. There's a, there's a big difference in that. He lost faith in Jesus' ability to keep him above the water, but he still trusted Jesus. He trusted him at some level because he cried out to him in his fear. He said, Lord, save me. I think the passage is a good illustration of a trusting nature of true faith and a good illustration, as I said before, of true but faltering faith that all of us have. Every one of us has. Jesus didn't rebuke Peter for having no faith. Jesus rebuked Peter for having little faith. You see the difference there? He said, you of little faith, in verse 31, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Peter was actually closer to Jesus when he was sinking in the water 
than when he was walking across the water toward Jesus. When Peter was in trouble, he was driven to Jesus, driven to him. And that's when he was the closest. There's been times like that in our lives too, haven't there? When we felt like we were sinking. And I think we have choices at those times to either turn to or turn away from Jesus. I think that's one reason that God allows storms in our lives. He doesn't cause those storms, but He allows allows them to come in our lives. You see, as long as everything's going along pretty smoothly, we can be genuinely trusting in Jesus for our salvation. We can be true Christ followers, but our faith is kind of uh, distant. Our faith is abstract. Our faith is on the back burner, we might say. We trust Jesus, yes. Yes, of course we trust Jesus. But if the truth be known, we have more trust in ourselves and our abilities than we do in Jesus. And that's where we get in trouble. Let the trouble come, and, and suddenly we're confronted with our own lack of ability, with our own weaknesses. And we're driven to Jesus many times simply because we don't have anywhere else to go, no one else to turn to. Everybody's left. He's the only one that's still there. It's in times like these that faith in Jesus grows strong. And the key to a strong, growing faith is running toward Jesus, not running away from Him. Run toward Him. Run to Him. I mean, I I, I can picture Him standing there with open arms, waiting. Run to Him. Don't run away from Him. Jonah. Remember, we talked about Jonah a few times. Jonah wasn't acting in faith like Peter was. Jonah was defiantly disobedient, I'll say. When God sent the storm, Jonah found himself inside the belly of a giant fish, a whale or whatever, and he turned back to God in prayer and was saved. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 and verse 7 says this. This is Jonah's prayer from Inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I, distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And verse 7 When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. God heard Jonah and saved him. Jesus heard Peter and saved him when he was sinking in the waves. Unfortunately, it always takes, or it sometimes takes, instances like that for us to turn from our disobedience back to obedience, and to change our faltering faith into a robust faith in our Savior. 
If you're here tonight and you're sinking in your faith because of troubles or because you doubt the wisdom and the power of God, I would say, stop looking at the waves. Stop looking at the waves and look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Say, Lord, save me. Here's the big idea for tonight. Jesus is the Lord of all circumstances, and He will be there to see you through them. He's the Lord. He's in control of all the circumstances. Every, there's not a circumstance you can name that He's not in control of. We don't think so sometimes, but He is. And He will be there. It's a promise. He will be there. He was there before the circumstance happened. He's there during the whole circumstance holding your hand. And He'll be there on the other side to see you through. Let's talk real briefly about the disciples' growing faith. See, after, after Jesus rescued Peter, they climbed back into the boat, the two of them, and immediately the wind died down. Now, that's pretty amazing in itself. We could say that's a miracle. It's impressive at least. But remember there was a similar effect that took place back in Matthew chapter 8 when we were studying there. Another storm. Matthew 8, 23 says this, Then he, this is Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Without warning, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. This time he's sleeping. This is a whole different story. It's not the same story. You would think back in chapter 8 when this happened that they would remember it in chapter 14. Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. Same thing that, they, that Peter said. We're going to drown. Verse 26, he, he replied, you of little faith. <laughs> Same thing he said to Peter. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. But they forget so easily, so quickly. Now, I think if something like that happened, I would never forget that. But evidently, we tend to forget. It wouldn't be in that scripture if, if God didn't think we needed to remember those things. The climax to, to Matthew chapter 14 is, is not the stilling of the waves. It's not the words that Jesus spoke to, to Peter, you know, and in, in when he said, you have little faith, why do you have a doubt? Now, I want you to get this. The climax is the disciples' confession of faith in Jesus and their worship of Jesus. Look at verse 33 again. Then those who were in the boat, this is after Jesus and Peter climbed into the boat, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. 
And they still had a long way to go. They, did, they still didn't really understand who he, who he genuinely was, but they took this important step by saying, truly you are the Son of God. Their faith was growing. They were growing in an understanding. They were kind of beginning to trust Jesus like never before. But let's not forget their worship. It says they worshiped. Um, then those who were in the boat worshiped him. This is the first time in Scripture that the disciples are said to have worshiped Jesus. The first time. In Matthew 2, the Magi from the, the three wise men from the east worshiped Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, there's a leper that is said to have worshiped Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, it says a synagogue ruler worshiped Jesus. But this is the first time that his own disciples have worshiped him. That's a, that's a turning point. That's a turning point. And it's important to notice that their worship is joined with that confession, truly you are the Son of God. That's what worship is, of course. Worship is acknowledging who God is and praising Him both for who He is and for what He has done. That's worship. That's what we hope we're able to do every Monday night here. Who He is and what He has done. And in this case, the disciples took that step of saying, He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. Now notice that they were entirely focused on Jesus in their worship, nothing else. Peter had just experienced this fantastic deliverance from the, from the waves there in the Sea of Galilee. But they didn't say, hey, Peter, give us your testimony. We'd love to hear your testimony. How did Jesus come to you or how did you come to Jesus? The wind had died down, but the disciples didn't say, let's circle up and have a Bible study on miracles. They worshiped Jesus. They worshiped Him. And they worshiped Him alone because they were entirely smitten with Him. Their worship was entirely focused on Jesus. And finally, the work that Jesus had begun... Months before, um, we're, we're, this, is, this is a long span of time here, um, continued as he moved on around the region of that upper part of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Gennesaret. And we read as we close out chapter 14, verses 34 and through 36 says this, When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Apparently, Jesus had never been to this region before because they didn't recognize his face. They didn't, you know, they didn't have any facial recognition. But when they realized that this traveling teacher was in fact Jesus, they brought all their sick friends and relatives to him to be healed. His reputation had preceded him. And probably they had heard the story of the lady, the woman who had 
uh, a continual bleeding for 12 years and reached out, touched the hem of his garment, and was instantly healed. And they thought, if we just touch his garment, his cloak, will be healed. That story's in Matthew chapter 9, verses 20 through 22, if you want to take time to, to read it. These people didn't care a thing about Jesus other than the fact that he might be able to heal their sick. They weren't there to be saved. They were there to be healed. And Jesus, as he so often does, had compassion. I should say as he always does, had compassion on them and healed them, even though he knew that they would not be his. And to close out this this series, the party, the picnic, and the perambulation, I want you to know that Jesus is caring for each one of you. He has compassion for each one of you. Even if you have not committed your lives to Him. Even if you have at some point committed your life to Him and are walking far from Him right now, He still has compassion on you. He cares for you. He loves you. The friends that you have, the health that you possess, the possessions that you own, the job that you work at, the the very life that you live are all gifts, good gifts from Him. He cares for you. He loves you. You might try to walk on the sea of your own achievements, but you know what? You're eventually going to sink if you're walking on your own. Because I don't care how smart you are, you're not smart enough. I don't care how wealthy you are, you're not wealthy enough. I don't care how self-righteous you are, you're not righteous enough. Quit kidding yourself. Quit kidding yourself. Take your eyes off of the things of the world out there, the social status and the, and the peer pressure and the greed and the lust and the pleasures of this world. Take your eyes off of those things and turn your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Him. Trust Jesus. Commit yourself to Jesus. And this time, this time, really mean it. Don't just say the words. Wholly commit yourself to Jesus. Say as Peter did, Lord, save me. Save me. Cry out as the disciples did in worship. Truly, you are the Son of God. And let the healing begin in you tonight this very night.